I guess I can go ahead and preach now. Mm. Thank you, Lord. Before we jump into the text, I uh, forgot to mention this in the first gathering, but today is a, a special day for us uh, at Epiphany. Um, Restoration Church is celebrating one year today. Uh, of faithful ministry. Um, and so it's, uh, I know with us being a church planting church, sometimes we take it for granted that we plant churches, but there aren't many urban inner city churches planting churches. Uh, and so it's a joy uh, and an honor, and, and all we can do is give glory to God that, that his faithfulness has sustained them for one year. Um, but not only that, today is the launch service for Epiphany Brooklyn. And uh, Pastor, Pastor Mason is, is up there celebrating with them as we speak uh, during their first service. And so keep them lifted because uh, Brooke, Brooklyn is rough up there. It's, it's rough up there. And so um, it's just such, it's such a privilege to be a part of the work of God. Uh, and so I uh, counted, counted a joy that, uh, that we are part of a church that gets to send people off uh, to do the work of the ministry in very difficult places. Amen. Amen. If you would, stand to your feet with me and open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 11 through the end of the chapter. When you get there, say amen. If you're not there, say hold on. I'll give you a couple more, a couple more seconds. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning at verse 11. Here we go. I'll start as you guys join in. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Keep reading. Amen. The title of our text this morning is Unlocking the Secret to Effective Ministry. Unlocking the Secret to Effective Ministry. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you just thankful. Uh, we stand in awe of, of you because of who you are, because you are the God of all creation. Uh, you are uh, unknowable, and yet you draw near to us so that we can know you. Uh, and so we're so grateful not only to know you, but that you know us. And so we pray, God, as we grow in understanding of you and your word, that we will be drawn into credible gospel ministry in a way that brings glory to your name in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Christ's name and all of God's people said amen. 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 You may be seated. Uh, I consider myself to be somewhat of a, a spirited uh, person. 
and by uh, spirited, I mean, uh, I'm just using that as a nice way to say I don't like losing <laughs> at all. I'm, I'm extremely competitive in pretty much everything. My wife can attest to it if we play games and she's not on my team, I'm not going to let her win. I don't, I don't like, she, and she's the type of person where if, she, if we're not on the same team, she'll encourage me during competition. I don't like that. <laughs> because we're enemies until the game is over. So I don't appreciate this, this type of, like, let's be friends while we're competing. No. Right? So th that's just, I, that's how I am. I, I, I hate losing. It just, it burns me up. But not only that, it kind of feeds in this sense of whenever I try to do something, especially if it's sports related, I feel like even if I'm doing it for the first time, I should be good at it. <laughs> like I should excel at it. So if we're playing basketball, I want to beat you. And if I can't beat you, I'm going to go practice until I can. If I'm golfing for the first time, I want to get out there and I want to be able to do what Tiger Woods does. <laughs> Not this Tiger Woods, but like 10 years ago Tiger Woods. <laughs> and so one day, uh, a few years ago, my wife decided to ask me to go skiing with her. She had gone skiing previously. I've never been skiing, but how hard can it be? Because I see kids doing it, right? <laughs> So it's a Sunday, we go out to the Poconos, and uh, it, we got there too late for the instruction time, to get time with the instructor, right? Uh, and so there was nobody there to kind of give me instructions on what to do, but I I'm, said, I'm hey, I'll watch people for a little while, and then I'll figure it out. And so they pointed me to the bunny hill. The bunny hill is where you kind of get your practice on a little bit before you go to the beginner's level and then the moderate level, and then that hill that has the skull, the black skull, and all that crazy stuff. And so the hill, the little bunny hill, is actually lower than these two steps. It almost feels like you're going on a flat surface, all right? And so I get out there, and I, I've got my little pole things. I don't know what they're called, but the pole things. Uh, and, you know, and in my mind, I see myself, like, just in the air, like doing the, the eagle thing that they do and all that stuff. And that's how I think of myself, but when I look down, I'm just slowly kind of going across the snow. And so in this process of trying to figure it out, like I, um, I, I'm trying to learn how to stop, and they're saying, okay, you got to cross your feet, so you kind of come to a stop and all that stuff. I'm trying to do it. It's not working, right? And so I'm getting frustrated because I can't learn how to stop, let alone turn and ski and move and all this stuff. And, and I look over to my side, to the, the, the beginner's hill, and I see kids going down the hill, and I know they can't walk yet. They're too young to walk, but they know how to ski. And this is frustrating me. I'm a grown man. I'm a grown man. So I don't want to be able to see kids do something and I can't do it. So I get frustrated and I'm there for a little while. And, and you know, my wife is there with me for a while. She, you know, she's an encourager, you know, which I told you earlier. And so after a while, she said, you know, is it okay if I go on and ski? You know, I didn't want to tell her no. What, that, what I'm going to look like? So, you know, she goes off and skiing. I'm still practicing, and I'm getting more and more frustrated. There's this little fence at the bottom of the little bunny hill, and I can't stop, so I'm just, I keep going down, running into the fence. <laughs> Come back up, go down, run into the fence. I'm learning nothing. 
right? But the reason I, I couldn't be successful at skiing was because I had skipped some steps. And no matter what I tried to do to teach myself, unless I went back and went through the steps of learning how to properly ski, I was going to be unsuccessful. See, in, in the Christian life, in order to be effective in ministry, you can't skip steps. There are no shortcuts. And we find ourselves in a text where Paul has left Timothy in Ephesus, and he's gone on to Macedonia, and there are some issues at the church in Ephesus. There's a bunch of false teachers there. And this is probably Timothy's first time being on ministry on his own. Previous to that, he had spent time with Paul uh, on his missionary journeys. You can find that it was in the book of Acts. But, but now, Timothy was being left at a church while Paul went on, and he had the responsibility and task of addressing some issues, primarily false teaching that was happening in the church. Now the text doesn't say exactly what type of false teaching. All we know is that uh, people were trying to teach the law and they stunk at it. And they were pushing people away from following Christ. And they were causing them to believe a different gospel. Then there was another group of people who were getting people to believe that they couldn't eat certain foods and they had to practice abstinence from marriage, and, and they had to live uh, as recluses in almost a monk state of fashion where everything that God had created was evil. They couldn't enjoy the pleasures of creation because they were evil. And so they were drawing people away. And so Paul leaves Timothy there, and he says, I need you to address these false teachers. And he gets to chapter four, and he says, he says, but in light of you addressing these false teachers, there's going to be some things that you need to do to make sure that the ministry that I've put you in charge of at Ephesus is credible and effective gospel ministry. And there's no way to skip steps. So many times we come to passages like this. We come to the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and we say, well, you know, isn't this book just for those who want to be in pastoral ministry? Isn't this just for the leaders of the church? In chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, Paul lays out exactly why he wrote this letter to Timothy. It says this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy to let, no, to let him know, to communicate to other believers there how the Christians need to act in the church which means this pastoral letter is not just for those seeking to be in ministry, but it's for all of us. Because in this letter, we find instruction on how we as believers are to act in the church. And so Paul spends some time laying out some of the things that are happening in the church, some of the, some of the issues that Timothy needs to address. But he goes in chapter four and he says, there are gonna be some things that you need to make sure are in place and in order before you can actually be successful in ministry. And so that's where we find ourselves in, in verse 11, if you go there with me. And it says this. It says, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Brings me to my first point this morning. Effective ministry requires an exemplary Christian lifestyle. Effective ministry requires an exemplary 
Christian lifestyle. He starts this section off by saying, command and teach these things. Now, for some reason, through the course of his letters to Timothy, he made a habit of telling him or commanding him to teach these things and having to encourage him to be bold in his faith. And the reason why was because Timothy was, he was somewhat of a timid man. He was younger and he was timid, not as comfortable in his own skin yet. First time in ministry. And so could you imagine being, this being your first ministry experience and you going to a church that is run by false teachers and everybody's older than you and you've got to come in and set things straight. Could you imagine the pressure on young Timothy having to go in and be bold to give instruction of God's word and to contend against false teachers who already had the ears of people? It's a lot of pressure on a young man. But Paul tells him in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, but God did not give you the spirit of fear. And so he encourages him constantly, command and teach these things. Teach all of what uh, Paul had been writing in the previous chapters in chapter 1 to to contend against the false teachers, to, to correct those men and tell them to stop teaching but also to give instruction to the people who had been learning. Then in chapter two, he gives instructions to make sure the people are praying, not just for one another, but also for their leaders, not just their Christian leaders, but for the leaders of their nation, even the ungodly ones. How often do we do that? Then he goes down and he talks through roles in the church. What, are the, what is the role of women in the church? What is the role of men in the church? And then he says, teach these things. Explain them. And then he goes on to a very familiar passage, a very familiar verse that, that I know a lot of us love to quote. And it says, let no one despise you, look down upon you, disregard you for your youth. And unfortunately, many of us, when we use this verse, we stop there. And all we do is quote, don't despise us because of our youth. But the last time I looked in my Bible, there was more to that verse. And so Paul tells him, he says, don't, any, don't let anyone disregard you in ministry because of your age. Now, when you see that word youth there, it's not the same word for youth that we use. It's, it, it, it has in mind someone who's being the, between the ages of 20 and 45. And so Timothy here was late 20s, early to mid 30s. A lot of people think he was mid 30s. But when we see this, don't think teenager. Think late 20s, early to mid 30s. And so Timothy's a young man, and you would think, oh, man, he's in his mid-30s in ministry already. He's got to be doing something good. Yeah, but from society's perspective at that time, he wasn't old enough to get respect yet. He wasn't an old head yet. Timothy was still, as a 30-year-old man, a young bull. And so, so he's got some issues, some security issues. He's, he's probably a little nervous to come in and just start putting things straight. And so Paul has to command him to teach these things. It says, listen, don't let anybody disregard you just because of your age. But he doesn't stop there. He gives him some very specific instructions. He says, if you want them to take you seriously, Timothy, if you want to have credibility in their eyes, then here's what you need to do. You need to set an example for them. You can't just, it's not enough just for you to run your mouth. You've got to set an example for them. Even at your age, if you're, you, if you're too young to be considered somebody to take seriously in the faith, if you set an example, people will take you seriously. All they need to do is watch your life. 
over the course of time, and they'll take you seriously. So he says, don't let them disregard you, Timothy, but set an example for them. And then he gives them some very specific areas that he needs to set an example in. He says, be an, exa- be an example in speech. Be an example in speech. What does your speech look like when you're not at church and you're not around other Christians? So think back to when you get frustrated or when somebody offends you or when things aren't going your way. What kind of language do you use? When people have wronged you and you go to confront them, how do you speak to them? When you're on Facebook and you see somebody post something silly about Christianity, how do you engage in conversation with them? See, there's, there's a standard of speech, of how we use our words, of what comes out of our mouth, where we need to set an example in all things. Listen to what he tells Timothy in, in uh, 2 Timothy. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Even, even when we're wronged, even when we're in discussions with those who are doctrinally incorrect, there's a standard, there's a standard of our speech that should exemplify Christianity and Christ-likeness. See, it's, it's easy to justify using not even just inappropriate language, but hurtful language when difficulty comes up, both in terms of our circumstances and in our relationships. And so the question is, if, if, if you couldn't hide your speech by being alone by yourself and, and, and the track record of your life could be played out, would people be able to see all, everything that you say and follow that? Would it be an appropriate example for them? Then he says, not only in speech, but he says in conduct, in your manner of life, the way you live, is that an example for people? Can people look at your life and model you and be drawn closer to God in every area of your life? I know we, I know we have our slogan of, you know, uh, showing off the glory of Christ in every area of life, Right? But how many areas of our lives do we keep secret? How many areas of our lives have we not given over to the authority of Jesus? How many many areas of our lives do we justify because we're angry or because they hurt me? There's there's a sense in which our, our manner of lifestyle needs to be one that people can follow. Then he says, he says speech. He says conduct. Set an example in love. Is, do, do we sacrifice for people? Do we only help when it's convenient for us? Do, are we only willing to go out of our way when we have nothing to lose and it doesn't cost us anything? Set the conduct in love. Jesus has a conversation with uh, one of the teachers of the law. And he says, what are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And so the question for us is like, what are, are, do, are we known as loving people? Are we known as helpful people? Are we known as gentle people? Are we hospitable? Do we give of our time? Do we give of our money? Do we, do we love those who persecute us? Do we pray for those who are against us? Like, do we model love the way Jesus does? Conduct, speech, love, in faith. Set an example in faith. Does, does difficulty just shatter what you think about God? Does it cost you to question his character? Or were you ready to walk away because things get hard? In faith, in what you believe. But not, not only that, what about, do you set the example in your faith by how you rest? Oh, okay, y'all don't know what I'm talking about. We live in a culture in a day and age where we work more now than we ever have in terms of hours. We're, we're in the grind culture. I'm on my grind. If you're, not, if you're sleeping, then you're not succeeding. There is a biblical precedent for rest in the Bible that we don't adhere to. We act like there were six days of creation and there wasn't no seventh day. God said it's time to rest. Do you trust God enough to rest so that you show your dependence on him that things will get done even when you're not working. So when we talk about faith, we gotta talk about faith in all things. Not just right belief, but also in right practice. Is your faith setting an example? But then he says, in purity. I like this word purity. This word means moral cleanness. It's where we get our word hygiene from. But, but here it has to do with Primarily, um, it has to do with sexual impurity. Is your life free from sexual impurity and thoughts and in practice? Can someone look at your example when you relate to the opposite sex and can people follow you? Are you constantly falling into sexual sin? Is your life marked by pornography and sleeping around? Is your, is your life marked by dating around all of just jumping from guy to guy and woman to woman? Is your, is your life marked by hiding in the dark? See here, Paul is telling Timothy, he's, if you want to be taken seriously, if you want to be credible, if you want to be seen as a, a credible witness of gospel ministry, then when you teach these things, it can't just be lip service. You've got to be sure that you're above reproach in your speech and in your conduct, in your love, in your faith, and in your purity, because as people watch your life, they need to be able to model you, because the minute that they have a fault against you, you've lost all credibility. And so, here, Paul is trying to encourage Timothy, you've got you've to be mindful that, that the gospel is at stake not in just what you say, but in how you live. There, there has to be a correlation between what you preach to people and how you're living. 
We all know people like that. They say one thing out of their mouths and do another thing with their lives. We call those politicians. I hope there's no politicians in here, but it's true. But, but there has to be a correlation. See, uh, effective gospel ministry can only take place when what you say about God matches up with how you live for him. Otherwise, nobody will take you seriously. So he says, let no one despise you, look down on you because of your youth, but set an example for the believers. Even as a young man, set an example. Then we get to verse 13, and it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Uh, do not neglect the gift which you have been given. Let's, 13, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Effective ministry requires clear communication of God's word. Effective ministry requires clear communication of God's word. Paul here tells him to devote himself, to take serious time to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. One of the common practices in the Jewish temple was they would get up and they would pick a passage and they would read that passage. And after they would read the passage, someone would get up and explain the passage so that the people listening could understand God's word. We see this in Nehemiah chapter 8 as they were rebuilding the city and they were rebuilding the walls and they found the book of the law. And it says the people gathered together and they read from the book from the law of God clearly, and then they gave a sense so that the people understood the reading. There's a common practice where as we engage in effective ministry, there has to be a reading of God's word and a clear expectation so people understand what God's word says. Which means you have to do the hard work of helping people understand what God's word means. And in order for you to help people understand what God's word means, you need to understand what God's word means. It's not enough for us to just tell people what God's word says without helping them understand what it means. So here Paul is telling him, he said, until I come, until I get back, make it a habit of preaching and exhorting and encouraging the people, but make sure you do it in a way where you Tell them what it means. It means to give clear instructions to people. Then he goes down to verse 14. It says, do not neglect the gift which, which you, that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Effective ministry requires the exercise of spiritual gifts and calling. Effective ministry requires the exercise of spiritual gifts and callings. Timothy had, been, had his lay, hands, laid, hands laid on him by the elders, uh, and there was prophecy spoken over him about his life. We don't know exactly what that means, but what we do know is that God had gifted him in a very particular way so that in order for effective ministry to be done, he needed to walk in and utilize the gift that the Spirit had given him to do. Which means for us, if you're a Christian... If you're a blood-bought believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God has also given you a gift. Every single one of us have been given a gift by the Spirit, which means that every single one of us need to be actively utilizing our gifts for the glory of God, 
which means there is nobody sitting down on their hands just watching everyone else serve. Because in order for effective ministry to be done, you need the body of Christ, which means God's given you a gift that he hasn't given somebody else. And even though you might have a public gift, you have a gift that's necessary for effective ministry to be done by God's people. And so Paul here is reminding Timothy, God's given you a gift. You need to make sure that you're utilizing what God has stored inside of you through his spirit. Then he goes on, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Effective ministry requires diligence and growth. See, the the product of practice and immersing yourself in and doing these things is faithfulness. I like how Crawford Loritz defines faithfulness. He says, faithfulness is a long obedience in a specific direction. This, this idea of practice is repetition, doing it over and over again so that when the time comes, you're ready. And you don't have to think about what to do because you've already been preparing for it. And so now it's just second nature. In uh, 1976, there was a, a young girl from Romania named uh, Nadia Go ahead and say that loud. Komenichi. She was a young girl in, in the women's gymnastics section. Won three out of the five events. The three times she won, she got a perfect score, a perfect 10, which is hard to do. And so she gets down from one of the events, and the announcer goes over to her, and he's really excited. He's like, man, this is incredible. You're so young, and you're doing all this, and... and And this hasn't been done before in Olympic history. Nobody's ever gotten three perfect tens in an event before. How did you do it? And she shrugged her shoulders. She said, yeah. And so he's thrown back. And he's, why aren't you more excited about this? I just told you, you you set history here. And she said, well, I did 14 of those in practice. And then they, they show a clip. And in the clip, there's this old rugged gym with foam beams everywhere and there's a bunch of girls running around and all you hear is the voice of the coach. Again, 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 again. They had spent so much time practicing that by the time they got before the lights, it wasn't anything new. That's what it should be like for us in the Christian life. See, difficulty shouldn't throw us off. Trials shouldn't throw us off. Disappointment shouldn't throw us off. You know why? Because we've been practicing. And so when hardship comes, I, I I know how to count it all joy. Because I've been practicing. I, I, when, 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 when my finances are a wreck, I, I know how to be content in plenty. And when I don't have anything, because I've been practicing. See, see, trials should not throw us off our game and push us to not knowing how to respond. Because if you don't respond biblically when trials show up, all it does is expose the fact that you don't be practicing. 
You be on your Allen Iverson ministry. Practice? Practice, not a game. There's a need for us to take time to prepare in our spiritual development in such a way that when the game lights come on, we're not thrown off guard. Practice. That's why the writer of Hebrews was so frustrated with the people. He says, I can't even give you the meat yet because you're still on milk. He says, you should have been teachers by now. But the reason they hadn't grown was because they hadn't been practicing. But he doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And then he says, so that all may see your progress. Which means that there should be a sense in which you're growing progressively over time so that the way that you used to respond isn't the way that you respond now. Because with practice, you get better. And so if you've been practicing, you shouldn't be the same as you were before. Which means people should be able to see you growing in Christ because you've been practicing. That's why in the NBA, they give out an award of a comeback player of the year or most improved. That's why we give most improved awards because we want to see who's gotten better over time. Have you been practicing? But it, here's a note here. Don't mistake activity for progress. See, when I was on that little bunny hill, I was doing a lot of stuff, was trying to get my stop right, was trying to turn, was trying to slow down, was trying to do all those things. I was doing a lot of things, but I was not making progress. Yeah, there you go. See, some of, some of us in our lives, we're doing a lot of activity yeah. in our Christian life, but we're not making any progress. So you need to be careful of thinking that just because you're active, you're making progress. We get down to verse 16, and Paul here summarizes what he's been teaching Timothy and, and just kind of summarizing sort of this idea of how all of this comes together. And he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So he says, he says to summarize, Timothy, there are two essential things that you need to make sure that you do in order to have effective ministry. You need to make sure that your life is in order and you need to make sure that the teaching that you ascribe to is in order. Because you can't be a false teacher, and all, you also can't be a faulty Christian in your life. Because both things are necessary for credibility. In order to be credible, not only do you have to have the right word, but you have to live the right word. And if you're not keeping watch, then bad things happen. If you've spent any time in the Florida area for a long period of time, you're familiar with sinkholes. And sinkholes is when the ground just sort of falls out and everything gets swallowed up inside of it. This happened a couple years ago in Florida. I remember I was actually in Florida when this happened and it freaked me out. I wanted to get on an airplane quick and fast. But there was a guy and he was living in his house, he was sitting in his room and the ground just swallowed him up. 
There were other people in the house, and they were fine. But the ground just swallowed up his room. Now, what happens with a sinkhole is deep within the ground, there's almost like a cave structure, this hollow. And as rainwater comes down, it softens the ground, and the ground begins to fall through these little crevices into the hollow cave. Slowly but surely, over time, the ground that used to be a firm foundation for the surface is no longer there. And over time, because there's no longer a surface there, everything collapses. Now, you can't see this happening from above the surface. And so what, even though it's been taking place for years, it comes upon you just like that. That's what happens in the Christian life when you don't keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Even though on the surface everything looks stable, underneath the ground there's a lot of crumbling and deterioration going on. And so even though you might look like you're okay for a while, eventually it's all going to fall out from under you. So Paul here is trying to tell Timothy, Timothy, don't have a sinkhole ministry in your life where everything looks like it's okay, where doctrinally you look like you're doing well, where you're serving in a church that got a lot of people and money is coming in, but underneath where nobody can see, your life is deteriorating. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And then he says, persist in this for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And the idea that he's giving here is, he's saying, he's saying, Timothy, when you, when you believe the true gospel, and when you live out the true gospel, it causes change in your life. And when it causes change in your life, and you're faithful over time, people can see what you're telling them but they can also see how you're living. And what it does is it helps them to do the same. Because the minute you stop living the true gospel, people see your life and they justify why they can follow you and not live the true gospel. But as you preach the true gospel, it calls them back to obedience in Christ. And so in order for people to not face the judgment of God, they need to see both your life and your lips because they're married together. And so for us, we have to begin to ask ourselves this question. If our lives were laid bare so everyone could see, would we have a credible witness? Would our lives and would our lips be worthy to be followed in such a way that people are drawn closer to Jesus? And that's, that's what we've got to ask ourselves. That's what Paul was encouraging Timothy to do. He said, in order for you to be successful while I've left you at Ephesus, you've got to have credibility of your life and credibility of your message so that people can be saved. See, so we've, we've, got, we've got a great high priest who has modeled this for us. See, the Bible talks of Jesus and it says that there was no sin found in him, nor any deceit in his mouth. Jesus' life was, was a model that we can follow. See, he had to come and live perfectly as a man because in only him living a perfect life qualified him to die a perfect death. 
The only reason his death was valid was because his life was perfect. The resurrection was just confirmation that his life was perfect. And so as we live this thing out, we get to, we get to depend on the perfection of his life. So even when we fall, we're not standing in his righteousness anyway. And so even though this is the mandate for us, this is the mandate. The mandate is for us to strive and to make every effort to be sure that our doctrine is correct and our lives are correct. But even, the, even when we fail, that's why we're able to point people to his righteousness. Because only his life is the one that saves. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that even though we are required by your word to live upright and upstanding lives, that it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. The perfection of our great God and King has done everything required for salvation. But you've called us to play a role so that we bring credible witness through both life and lips to a dying world. And so God, we pray that you would use us as agents for your glory, that people would be able to look at our lives and see the beauty of who Christ is through our words and through our actions and that they might be pointed to God and give praise to him because of our good works. Father, we pray these things today in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.